It was 50 years ago today that President Lyndon Johnson addressed a joint session of Congress urging them to consider voting rights legislation. Now, that speech took part in, in large part because of events that had taken place just a few days earlier on March 7th and March 9th, 1965. People had gathered in Selma, Alabama to march toward Montgomery to speak out for African Americans being denied their right to vote. People wanted to march peacefully to protest that injustice. Uh, On that occasion, they met in Selma, and they would cross over the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Now, an interesting note about that bridge, it would become a symbol of the civil rights movement. And yet, it was named originally for a man who was a general in the Confederate Army and a Grand Dragon in the Ku Klux Klan. And since then has become reclaimed and become a symbol of strength and peace and solidarity. Martin Luther King Jr. and other civil rights leaders would focus on Selma as the beginning of their voters' rights appeal. And so they gathered together on Sunday, March 7th. And a group of them, about 600, set out across the bridge And there they encountered the local police and state troopers who started attacking them with whips and beating them with clubs. A crowd of local townspeople had gathered and they were cheering on the violence. State troopers who were on horseback charged into the middle of the marchers, running them over. It was a terrible day. They would try again a couple days later, only going uh, part of the way as a symbolic gesture. They would turn around again completely in peace. And yet that evening, Reverend James Reeb was beaten so severely that he would die because of his wounds. And so just a few days later, President Johnson addressed the Congress. And it would be on March 21st that they would set out to complete their march from Selma. This time, crowds of more than 25,000 showed up. And they were marching peacefully. Despite everything that happened, they marched peacefully as a sign of solidarity with African Americans who had been denied their right to vote. Now, in the face of opposition, in the midst of chaos... In spite of the violence that was shown to them time and time again, they continued to be an example of peace. How could they keep their composure in situations like that? Martin Luther King Jr. and the other civil rights leaders, for men like them, for people like them, all of the women and men who were part of that movement, their strength, their character, was more powerful than the evil that they encountered. It was what they had within that enabled them to fight and combat everything that was without. Now, they understood that their battle was not with the local authorities, but they had to stay strong so that it never became about that. They had something much larger at stake. 
they understood that they were battling against oppression and injustice and racism. And so they had to keep their focus. They had to keep their composure in the midst of all that turmoil to be able to achieve their dream. You know, in the world today, there are so many things that would knock us off course, that would take away our focus from the dreams and goals that we have. But it's always our choice. We get to decide where we put our goals, where we put our energy. We get to be in charge. How do we maintain our cool when everything around us is losing it? This morning, we're continuing on with our sermon series, What Lies Within. We're looking at the life of Christ in the days leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection, and we're looking at him as an example for how we can strengthen ourselves, how we can look within, how we can develop our relationship with God and so strengthen our character, strengthen the values that we hold, we can be stronger because of the relationship that we have with God and with others. This morning's scripture passage comes from the Gospel of Luke. And it comes from a time where it's a few days before the crucifixion. And Jesus is with his disciples in the garden. And they see a crowd of temple officials coming after him. Judas is in front. And Judas greets Jesus with a kiss. And the disciples hear Jesus say, Judas, you would betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And then the disciples realize that this group of people have come to take Jesus away. And so one of them cries out, Lord, shall we strike with our swords? And another one, the Gospel of John tells us it was Peter. Peter draws his sword. He doesn't even wait for Jesus to give an answer. And he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And Jesus cries out, no more of this. Now, what's fascinating, in that moment, this group of people have come to arrest Jesus, to take him away. And Jesus understands that his life on earth is growing short. He understands that he is about to be arrested and taken away and suffer pain and and torture. And yet, he's not addressing his attackers at this moment. He's talking to his disciples no more. He wants them to understand that they need to maintain their peace. They need to maintain the sense of composure in the midst of all this chaos if they want to carry out his mission, and violence won't accomplish it. How is it possible to keep your cool in the midst of everything when everything seems to be spinning out of control? I think there are three things that can help us address this. The first is don't go looking for a fight. Now, that seems pretty common sense. If we're going to be people of peace, we shouldn't go looking for a fight. And yet, when Jesus took his disciples for a time of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, they took their swords. Who takes a weapon to a prayer meeting? but they wanted a fight. They were ready for one. Peter strikes out first before anything else had happened. Now, before we come down too hard on the disciples, it's easy to see where they may have misunderstood the words of Christ. 
Just a few verses earlier in this same chapter of Luke, Jesus is addressing the disciples and he tells them, do you remember when I sent you out into the world to share the message of God's love? And in that instance, I told you not to take anything. Don't take a purse or a tunic or anything. You'll be provided for. Do you remember that? Did you lack for anything? And the disciples said no. And he said, well, this time it's different, but now you must take all of your supplies. In order to be able to continue sharing the message of God's love, you have to be prepared. And so make sure you have a purse, make sure you have a bag, and if you don't have a sword, buy one. Now, Jesus wasn't telling them to attack anyone. He was wanting them to have a sword to be prepared. He was wanting them to have a sword so that they could be a symbol of strength, so that anyone who was persecuting them would understand that the disciples had made a choice not to use their weapon, to continue to show peace, to not defend themselves. They were supposed to reflect the love of Christ. And yet, even in that moment, they misunderstood because it says that they say in that moment, look, Lord, here are two swords. And Jesus said, it's enough. You see, the disciples had always been ready for a fight. They thought Jesus had come to stir up an army to act out against the Romans, to kick them out of their country to overthrow the government. And so they thought in the midst of battle, two swords are better than one, and they were ready for a fight. But the problem with that is if you prepare yourself for a fight, you're not prepared for anything else. And you can see that in this passage. Peter strikes first. He's ready to go. And Jesus calls them to stop. And then they don't know what to do. When Jesus is taken away, the disciples run off. When we prepare ourselves for a fight, we're not prepared for anything else. This past week, we had the opportunity to celebrate the life of James Norick. He was a former mayor of Oklahoma City and the father of another mayor and St. Luke's member, Ron. Jim Norick truly was an incredible man. In his service, there were several stories and examples given of ways that he made a difference in this world. He had a gift of music that he shared for the entirety of his life. He loved Oklahoma City, and he loved his country, and he dearly loved his family. But there were also examples given of how he was a man who could face adversity, and he had several times in his life. And he was someone who never lost his composure. He was able to maintain his focus and understand the greater things at hand in those situations. He was someone who served in World War II in the Navy. And he was someone who fought for the pipeline that brought water to Oklahoma City from a source 100 miles away, even in the face of opposition. Not many people liked the idea at the time. And now, of course, so many years later, we're very thankful for the benefit of that pipeline. He was someone who could face troubling circumstances and maintain his own identity. In 1969, the sanitation workers of Oklahoma City went on strike. 
Now, this was a particularly troubling time in our city and in the United States. It had just been a year earlier that they had had a sanitation worker strike in Memphis, Tennessee. And Martin Luther King went there to be in support of the workers. And he was assassinated. And so when the sanitation workers here in Oklahoma City went on strike, it was about far more than just the wages and the working environment. There was so much emotion. There was anger and loss and grief. And and so much was boiled up into that moment. And it started to seem like it was escalating out of control. City officials threatened the workers that if they walked off their jobs, they would lose their jobs. And several did. And then there were some of the workers who, because the strike went on so long, they returned to work and they were berated by the strike leaders. Everybody seemed to be attacking each other. The strike leaders demanded not only better wages and better working conditions, but now they demanded that everybody who had lost their job would get their job back. Well, the city had had to replace those jobs, and so no one was willing to concede, and it was at a stalemate. It finally came to a head, and and people were really afraid that it could result in violence, like had been seen in so many other different places. But it was a key decision by Mayor Norick that really brought uh, peace in that situation. He issued a no-arrest order. And that allowed people to be able to speak and be heard. And eventually, the wages and the working conditions were addressed. And everybody who had lost their job received a new job in the private sector. And the strike was ended because Mayor Norick was able to keep his composure and focus on the greater things at hand. He was a man of integrity and compassion We can be like that. We can be people who maintain our peace and not get caught up in all the arguments and and situations that we face every day. We can be the person who solves problems and not creates them. Second, we need to bring healing whenever possible. When Peter attacked the man... In the midst of everything, you can imagine how that just increased all the tension and all the turmoil. And people were struggling for control. And Jesus was about to be led away. And yet, he never lost his sense of self. He knew who he was. And so in that moment, he reached out and healed the man who had been wounded. He wanted his disciples to see that it wasn't just about peace but they were also called to bring healing in the world. For us, it will never be enough to simply not engage in the fight. It won't be enough for us to just remain neutral in life. We are called to bring healing in the world. Anderson Saw was a young man who grew up in the slums of Rio de Janeiro. The slums there are called favelas, They are illegal settlements that the government largely ignores, and crime and disease are rampant. There is very little running water or electricity, very few schools, and the schools that are there don't go beyond the elementary uh, grade age. Drug gangs control the areas. 
By the time he was 10, Anderson had seen a man violently murdered in the street. And by the time he was 12, he had joined in to one of the drug gangs. In that area, in the favelas, the children are raised to understand the importance of the drug business. They would know that a typical Brazil worker would make about $13 in wages, but a drug dealer makes $650 a week in wages. And so these children grow up wanting to be drug dealers. Anderson saw was no different, and he became involved in drug trafficking, and he was involved in that, in the violence and the crime and, and the pain and loss for several years until one moment that the leader of his gang shot and killed four police officers. The next day, the police returned in force, and they would kill 21 people, one of whom was Anderson Saw's brother. In that moment, an incredible thing happened. Now, he had been raised up in this environment of retaliation and revenge, and it would have been normal for him, especially since his brother had been killed, that now he plots revenge. But in that moment, something stopped, and he sat back, and he thought about what was going on. And he wondered if he could stop the violence. He wanted a better life for himself. He knew that his life Growing up had been better than most. His parents had always loved and cared and provided for him. He always had clothes and food on the table. And so it was out of this sense of wanting something better for himself, but also a sense of gratitude to give back to the people who had always given to him that he wanted to bring healing in his community. And so the first thing he did was get out of the gang and stop the drug business. He met another young man by the name of Jose Jr., and together they wanted to stop the violence. And so they started publishing a newspaper telling the people of the favelas of all that was going on, the the reality of their situation. The only problem was that most of the people in the favelas couldn't read. And so they had to come up with a different solution. Anderson Saw was a songwriter, and he was pouring out his heart in a song, talking about his frustration and wanting to make a difference, when he realized that music could be the way to reach people. Music could be understood, and music could be the way that they they would teach and get their message out. And so they developed the Afro-Reggae Band, And they started doing concerts, free concerts in the parks and in the schools. And the song lyrics were countercultural. They talked about hope and peace and putting an end to the violence. And slowly but surely, people started coming and, and listening and changing. They started developing programs like our after school program of El Sistema, where they got instruments for the local school children and taught them how to be in bands and and how to be in drum corps. And they developed these groups throughout the entire city. They started seeing that the culture was changing. Youth were now able to provide for their entire families because of the money that they were making by playing in these bands. And they were seeing fewer and fewer drug dealers The band has now grown into more of a community project. And they have literacy programs and parenting classes. 
and classes to teach young children dance and music. It is an incredible thing that's bringing healing in the midst of all the turmoil. He was able to maintain his focus, to not seek retaliation, but be a person of healing. And third, it's important that we let the light of God shine within us. There's an interesting verse in this passage. Jesus is addressing the people who have come to arrest him, and he tells them that this is your hour, the power of darkness. Now, in that phrase, I don't think he's talking about a supernatural evil. I think he's talking about the darkness of ignorance, the darkness of hatred. He's telling them that he knows that they came at night so that no one would see them. They didn't come when he was teaching and preaching to the crowds. They didn't come when he was healing the sick. Because as much for themselves, they didn't want to see their violent acts as opposed to his message of love and peace. And so they came at night. Not just the absence of sunlight, but the darkness of hatred. And they wanted their actions to be covered. The same can be true for us. Isn't it easier to judge people the less we know about them? Isn't it easier to be spiteful when we maintain a bad mood? And if we're honest, aren't there times that we stay in a bad mood for a little too long or we nurse a grudge and we start thinking of all the things that we could have told somebody a better retaliation instead of thinking of the words that would have resolved the problem in the first place? The truth is, when we cover ourselves in dark thoughts or attitudes, or we watch things that bring us down, it affects our behavior. But the opposite is also true. When we shroud ourselves in the light of God's love, it affects the way we act. When we read scripture... When we spend time in prayer, it affects the way we approach the world. It's why Jesus took his disciples to the garden for a time of prayer. They were exhausted and they kept falling asleep. But time and again, Jesus woke them up because he knew that they needed time in prayer. He knew that they needed that connection with God. Because that connection would give them strength for the time ahead. It's why we've passed out journals And we've asked people to answer three questions every day. Now, you may not have started yet, or you may need to begin again. But the reason we're doing this is that there's a few moments every day that you're spending in the light of God's love. The first question is, name something today for which you are grateful. When we practice gratitude, it changes our spirit. Second question is, Name something you learned or did for the first time. If we will work at learning new things and growing in our faith, it broadens our minds, it expands our tolerance, and it it furthers the way that we are able to love one another. And third is a question that will change throughout the year depending on the theme, but this week we're asking people to remember a time or someone that they know that brought peace in the midst of a tense situation. 
Do you remember a family argument that someone was able to kind of diffuse through some uh, loving words? Remember that. We do this to spend time every day in God's presence. It's what can give us strength and light for the dark times ahead. You know, the marches from Selma were largely precipitated by an event that took place on February 18, 1965. People had gathered in Marion to peacefully march and protest the arrest of a civil rights leader. He had been held in jail for several days, and they were worried about his well-being. And so they gathered together at the Zion Chapel Methodist Church and were going to march the short distance to the jail. Now, that evening, one of the people present was Jimmy Lee Jackson. He was a 26-year-old man, and he was there with his mother, Viola, and his grandfather, Cager Lee. Now, this young man was really an incredible young man. When he was in high school, he dreamt of leaving the South, of leaving behind all the hatred and moving somewhere up north. And shortly before high school graduation, his father died suddenly. And so he decided to stay behind and take care of his mother. In his church, he was dedicated to God, and his leadership was recognized. And at 26, he was the youngest deacon of that Baptist church in their history. And he was someone, although a quiet man, he was someone who wanted to show his solidarity for the civil rights leaders. And particularly on that evening, he wanted to march as a show of his his peace and solidarity in that moment. That evening, they left the church, and they had only gotten a block or so when someone cut off the power to the streetlights. And under the cover of darkness, local officials and authorities and townspeople attacked them, started beating them. Most of the marchers tried to run back to the church, but Jimmy and his mother and grandfather ran to a local cafe that was for African Americans. And there a man chased them inside and he started attacking his grandfather. And Jimmy ran over and tried to protect him. And then someone started beating his mother. And as he was trying to protect her with his body, someone shot him in the stomach. He stumbled outside, and they followed him, and they beat him to the ground. Jimmy Lee Jackson would die from his injuries eight days later. It was under the cover of darkness that they carried out their violence and hatred. And yet, the light of this young man, his life would continue to shine even today. His life would be a beacon for the civil rights leader to rally around. And it would be just a few weeks later that they would march from Selma. And President Johnson would address Congress. And that August, he would sign into law the Voters' Rights Act. And that fall, Cager Lee, the son of a slave and the grandfather of Jimmy Lee Jackson registered to vote for the very first time. He cast his ballot at the age of 84. We can be a light in the darkness. We can reflect the light of truth 
the light of love in the midst of a world that seems to spin out of control sometimes. We can do it when we focus on sharing God's love and bringing hope in the world. And that's possible when we strengthen our connection with God and focus on what lies within. It's in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers.